start recording then, then is this the start of the podcast? Does it include the little bit of the intro? So it's like fun and goof, goofy. I cut it down. Oh, no. Okay. All right. That's yeah, fine. I, I, and remember, Elvis, you taught us that lesson about stiff formality and how it's the way to communicate with people during a pandemic. We don't want that goofy stuff. We want. <laughs> Did I? Yeah. You should always solid, read everything you say. We want read every solid, polished paper. product. Quartz right. countertops. Hello. Welcome to episode eight of Two Rabbis And. My name is Dan Kamen, and I'm a rabbi at Congregation B'nai Emuna in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Every Friday, alongside my colleague, Rabbi Mark Boone Fitzerman, goes a live conversation featuring guest speakers whose work, stories, and messages are worthy of our attention. This week, we'd like to share with you our conversation with Elvis Ripley, a noted filmmaker and documentarian who has also served as an essential consultant to the synagogue as we've reimagined programming on camera and screen over this past year. For more information about the synagogue and our community here in Oklahoma, visit TulsaGog.com. If you like these recordings, consider subscribing to our feed. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Thank you, Rabbi. You came in. Friends, in the middle of the summer, which at this point really means, I think, the middle of the pandemic, I hopped on Zoom to talk with Elvis Ripley. We wanted to know if he would do some filmmaking for us and if he would, and if he would manage the whole of our high holiday experience electronically. The mm -hmm. truth is that he stopped me dead in my tracks. He was in his studio and he looked like a god. He was all <laughs> chocolatey coffee and perfectly mm -hmm. lit. And I wanted us all to look exactly the same. And Elvis has done that work for and with us ever since. If Rabbi Kamen and I have attracted any attention during the pandemic, it's thanks to Elvis. Mm. But more than that, Elvis has powerful ideas about the way we communicate with one another, especially when we're trying to do that work digitally. He knows what a synagogue should look like and what it shouldn't. He's the son of Oklahoma musical royalty, a documentary filmmaker, and he's now embarked on a new career in feature films. If you were impressed with Lador Vador, and that was the documentary on Tulsa's Jewish community, you have Elvis to thank. He was one of the driving forces of that project and its artistic presiding genius. We hope to introduce him today to all of you and to get a fuller sense of his life and his work. Elvis Ripley, welcome to Two Rabbis. We're thrilled that you're here. Oh, thank you. It's not my first. It'd be my first speaking in a Two Rabbis. But yeah, exactly right. always good to be here. Yeah. Elvis, and I would say oh. about the Tulsa, the Jewish community, it's a documentary about immigration, but it just uses the Tulsa Jewish community as a way to tell the story of more immigrants that came to all sorts of towns. They just happen to be some oil uh, stuff that happened here. That's, it's, a, it's a better way to describe it. It's more encompassing. 
And, so that, and I hope that's the way that people really see it, that we're one among many communities that received a minority group of, in our case, Jews, but opened up to a, a kind of diverse experience. I, I really hope that that's the way that people see that documentary, and I'm, I'm glad that that's the thought that you had in mind when you made it. Elvis, what was the path that led you to Lador Vador? How did you get chosen for that project? <laughs> what experience uh, did you bring to it? Tell us a little bit about that for starters. So uh, with Lador Vador, I have to mention Jeremy Lamberton, who um, I directed the project with. And it was, uh, this is a pattern, I think, with a few projects that Jeremy and I have done together where he will, um, we like collaborating with each other, but sometimes uh, he'll just get a project and he'll be like, oh, that sounds great. And then immediately be like, oh man, this, this is a very big project. Uh, I will need to bring on somebody else. And so then at the very beginning, he knew one of the board members of the uh, Tulsa Historical Society. And so they were like, what about this person? And then uh, Jeremy brought me on to kind of help the, uh, I don't know, style of it or, or the way to tell it or just the management also of, of, of such a large uh, project. And so then um, meeting with them, they didn't even really know exactly what they wanted it to be. They knew that there are Jewish people in Tulsa. That's kind of the, the extent of it. They want to talk about different people groups coming to Tulsa, why they came here, when they came here, um, and why not somewhere else. And so in, in Tulsa, um, that was a story that... Um, well, like Phil Goldfarb, um, he helped, he was uh, involved in the Tulsa Historical Society, but also he was a good um, introduction to a lot of people in the community. Um, and it, it came about organically at the beginning. We knew through Phil's um, genealogy kind of research that he, he, did anyway about the history of some families and before anything was shot we we knew we had a little bit of idea of who were some of the families we wanted to talk about what were some of the stories we wanted to talk about um but really we didn't know what we were going to get into um ahead of time just like a lot of documentaries you you maybe have a a historical event that's well documented and so you know you just need to find the right people but for this it was too um like uh i don't know it's a, it's people's history it's it's a sort of an ephemeral uh idea of why is hard to kind of pin down so uh talking to a few people um the oldest people we could find was the was really when I'd say the documentary started talking to um, Franco Moskowitz was really fun. He's a good one. Very old, very um, sharp. I mean, I don't know if he could tell you what he did yesterday, 
but he knows where he grew up and, and he has a perfect memory of especially his um, formative years as a uh, child and as a teenager and then starting out um, working into his family uh, business uh, selling furniture and or at, at that time, you know, even transitioning from the uh, sort of resale kind of pawn style that they were doing to actually like forming into what became the Moskowitz uh, furniture that lasted for many decades. Um, and, and so doing that and being like, wow, this guy's 90 something, you know, almost 100. He's got these great stories. Let's find a few more. And um, there's a few in the um, Fenster, Sanditon kind of family that because we knew Otasco uh, was a good through line we could use to go from early immigrants from the area we wanted to focus on, which was this uh, Poland, which, think you know, sort of the Poland, Eastern Europe area. Um, we knew that's where they came from. We knew that there were a lot of them. That was another thing. There's a lot of them. And so if some people don't remember everything, it doesn't matter because we'll ask two or three more and we'll get the, get the whole picture. And so doing that in the first bit, talking to some Sanditons, some Fensters, the oldest ones, and talking to Franklin Moskowitz, then it was like, now we understand really the story we need to tell. And then that's when stuff like um, finding a few historians to talk about immigration, uh, Jewish culture in the you know 1500s, 1800s, and how that led to people wanting to leave somewhere, um, and then also some Tulsa historians, um, and then just kept interviewing people for a long time, way longer <laughs> than anyone expected, like uh, maybe 13 or 14 months since we from the very beginning where I thought like, oh, we can get this done in a month. It's like every, most of the people are here. We can just talk to them. And it uh, didn't really work out. And Phil was going to mention Sherman Ray. Sherman Ray was a later one because he came to Tulsa later. And so even though he's, he's a, he is an old guy and he could give a good perspective on the old world, his old world was more um, newer, <laughs> newer Poland. And also uh, he came here after World War II. And so he didn't have as much information on early Tulsa, but his story was still the same of you have Poland, Russia, and Germany, and you have economic and political um, problems in the, in the country that build up to a state where they start looking to outsiders and these Jewish people are end up being an outside culture within their own people uh, because uh, these communities weren't allowed to do own land, own um, many businesses. And so they kind of have their own culture. And so they were isolated in these areas. So you get Poland first, then you get Russia um, around World War I, and then you get Germany around World War II, where you have waves of Jewish immigrants. And so you have three times when um, you have almost exact, I mean, it's uh, in Germany, we all know about how organized it was, but you have the same thing happening in all of these countries, intense poverty, intense persecution, intense, um, like, I don't know, just the general push to push these people out. 
and right when America is um, beginning to be like the shining light to just bring in as many immigrants as we can. Elvis, we should be uh, sure to mention that on the door of a door, you actually won an Emmy. Uh, maybe you have it nearby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I do. You know, I have it as my prop. This is thanks to the Jewish community. I won an Emmy because uh, people uh, thought like, oh, yeah, this is nice. This is a nice PBS special. It is a nice and it's and, and, and it's a documentary that's been screened on public television all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as you were just talking now, I'm thinking about this is a subject, the Jewish community of Tulsa, maybe the Jewish community in general, which as you entered this project, maybe perhaps without deep familiarity, and then you can now speak of Jewish history um, with some depth and breadth and nuance. How do you throw yeah. yourself into a, a new subject area like this? Where do you start reading? Where do you start exploring in your own process, whether it's the Jewish community of Tulsa or any of the other um, interesting projects you work on? The, the, I, uh, there were books that I read. There's one that's from, um, the uh it, it takes place in the mississippi delta it's called i think it's called the juice store i don't see it handy let's just say it's called the juice store and it's but it's it's a jewish perspective on these towns that would get set up around farming around usually agriculture but at sometimes it's it's around trade mm-hmm. but then they would bring in we need a we need some sort of merchant we need some sort of whatever. And so you have these Jewish immigrants and they, and there are systems set up where um, they're, you know, they're all arriving in New York and the, um, the Jewish community in New York is like, we have too many, send them somewhere else. And so you have these communities around the, around the country that are, are sort of organizing like, Oh, are you a butcher? Well, people need butchers here or people need uh, dry goods in this, in this area. And so it's, it's a, it's an example tale of this. And that's how I familiarize myself with the idea of you have, this area of um, zero Jewish people and how a family will set up a store and that leads to their relatives coming and setting up another store and how a lot of times they're just general purpose dry goods stores. But then that leads to pawn shops because they're just buying and selling goods. They have new things to sell. They have used things to sell. And, uh, and I familiarize myself through just reading everything I can or seeing if anybody else has done uh, documentaries on it. But in this case, it's a good way of, I talk to somebody mm-hmm. for a couple hours and the first, whoever the first person is and figure out whatever they can say. And then I talk to the next person and the next person, I got two or three people. And then I start to figure out what do they have in common and then still pretend like I don't know anything because then people will say like, as you know, this happened instead of starting at the beginning. And so I need them to say it because if it's on a documentary, you can't, it doesn't matter what I know. It ha- they have to say it on screen. Something has to be on screen. So you do two or three and then you start to really understand um, uh, like a perspective on Sadaka, which, which was this term that kept coming up. And then a perspective on what does this mean for people that are 80 to hundred? What does this mean for people that are um, sort of 50 ish? 
what does it mean for people that are um, younger in their 20s? And then you, that's where you start to get ideas like tikkun olam. And then you understand what does that mean for these people? And as this is going on, I'm looking up these terms to try to get a scholarly idea of it um, from, I don't know, Kabbalah fracturing the universe uh, and, and it needs to be, I, I don't know if it needs to be, but like, you know, they're at least trying to put it together. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that and through these stories, still every single time pretending like I don't know anything and I just have a list of topics. I mean, I'm looking at a blank piece of paper, but I'll be like, oh yeah, this, what is Sadaka? Hmm. That's something that comes up a lot. And um, then having people say it and having people give their perspective. But then but when um, this was also an interesting time where the Temple Israel has no rabbi or they have a temporary one. Um, and uh, this, I think I started around maybe when you did, uh, mm-hmm. right? Something like that. Yeah. So then I have you and then right at the very end, cause it went too long. That's when uh, rabbi Weinstein came on like, or as an official hider hire of temple Israel, but those you're, you're both two people that are, um, whether or not you have any perspective on Tulsa history, you know, mm-hmm. about Jewish history and you also are immigrants to Tulsa. And um, it's through that and through like uncovering just these general ideas of uh, justice mm-hmm. and doing the just thing that, that is a way to bring you in and to bring Rabbi Weinstein in so that, um, I mean, those are nice ways to have uh, the different parts of the Jewish community there. Like, yeah. um uh, just, you know, it's, it was just bad luck for Temple Israel that they were transitioning right then. So they didn't have an in-house rabbi that also happened to be like super old and could be like, oh yeah, when I started in the fifties or sixties, all of these things were happening. So, you know, we get Weinstein. He's like, oh yeah, last month, uh, you know, we, we had this thing happen. So it's, it is a different thing, but through those ideas that I only really learn about through talking to people, I don't, want to ever be too prepared because it doesn't matter what I can find out or what I can know mm-hmm. if I can't get people to talk about it and I can't get, and if there's nothing to show, like you could talk about a building through narration or something, but if it's, if it's there, but a lot of the places um, aren't there. Like uh, it, you know, there's no places, there's no, these original people aren't there and there's mm-hmm. not a lot of pho- photography. Um, the only, the only Jewish person that took casual photos and kept them, I guess, I don't, uh, but I don't think anyone did was Simon Jankowski, the, um, palace clothiers. And so for, uh, four or five decades, the only photos that are not posed are photos that Simon Jankowski took or had taken. And so you have one person that shows you the Jewish community from his perspective, but also like, as he's coming over from Europe, he's like 14 and he, 
he's having his photo taken in as he passes through New York. Like he just loves photos. And so he is just a unique kind of guy, uh-huh. but it's, it's that idea of if I can't show anything, it doesn't matter. And there's so many people in the Tulsa community that uh, one person would talk about and um, but there's no photos of them or there maybe is like their official portrait at, you know, their oil company or whatever. And it's like, it's boring. Like I can't, that can't be in there. It has to be, I have to learn about it through other people's experience. Um, even if I do my own research so I can kind of maybe direct the questions a little bit, what I know ends up being, um, irrelevant. So if everybody lied and they kept their stories straight, I wouldn't know the difference, but it wouldn't matter because I could maybe get an entertaining documentary out of it if I have everybody uh-huh. saying kind of the same thing. But if you know something is true and people disagree, then that's also fun. Um, so it's this perspective of coming in, not and whatever you do know coming into the interview or to the collecting mm-hmm. of information and 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 treating each each source as something that you don't know much to educate you from the, from the, from the start to draw. That's really um, interesting. And in defense of um, my own colleague and partner in this show, I I think it's only 30 years that he's been around. Oh, okay. Okay. Sure. 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 Uh, (laughs) This part's really fascinating. I have this image of you. Maybe it's the one I carry in my head of antenna quivering, picking up signals, holding yourself open to what you see and hear without pushing it through some filter, without pushing it through some predetermined ideas. Where does that openness come from? I've watched you work now in a couple of different settings, and I could vouch for the fact that that's the way, that's the way you plant yourself in the world. Is that a family habit? Is that part of your education? Is where does that come from? And I'm not just asking because one of our guests this morning happens to be your mom. <laughs> um, the it does come from a openness that I experienced growing up that I didn't see at my friends' houses, um, and the the uh, my dad was a musician, but he was a which is what people know him as, but he's really like a, a tinkerer and an, an inventor and he's just screwing around. Like he, he, he really didn't like playing. It was too, it was a mess uh, to, if you play a live show, cause it, well, cause it had to be perfect, but also he like, it seemed like he had kind of anxiety about it, a little stage fright or whatever. He was amazing on stage and he was an amazing performer, but also he was like not into it. Um, and that might have been, it seemed like it was different from when he was younger. I think like he liked it more probably because it was simpler, but as he grew up, it became more complicated, but experiencing him t- tinker, just having conversations with him um, was always wonderful um, and open and exploratory. And, uh, but my mom's that way. My sister's that way of uh, just, um, even with things that they might have preconceived ideas with, they still are a little open to um, imagining an abstract situation. And uh, which is, 
which is a skill that not everybody has, but it's maybe something that we all have because that's a little bit of communication. And then also schooling, uh, like um, doing my own uh, learning or trying to learn on my own more than what was in school. I was very bored in school and I hated it. It was the worst. And but I was still have to do stuff. And so I would do it on my own. And, and mm-hmm. through that, um, learning how to learn uh, was more interesting to me. And it also got to be easier when I got to um, started getting the speed reading when I was uh, in high school, which if you're doing if you're speeding high school stuff, it's there's not really much to read. And so I was able to kind of like breeze three breeze through stuff really quickly. And but I loved the speed of information I would get. And so that family stuff, um, probably reading Dune, uh, the book at a young age. Um, there's a lot of of things in Dune which I identified with that were about learning and self-education, which there's no way that will make it into the movie because they're subtler internal things but the the way of doing it the way of thinking and even um like uh sherlock holmes uh mentions this a little bit and through my own just documentary discovery i learned that you can't have any um if you make a dis- if you have a preconceived idea then you'll find facts that fit that narrative instead of taking in all of the facts and then deciding when it's time, what all of those facts are telling you. And that's in life, a good direction to go with, with things, but also in a documentary, you need to collect everything first and then decide where the story goes. Um, Because if you have a story first, then if it doesn't fit the facts and narrative elements you're collecting then you're fighting with it the whole time and you're swimming upstream or you're or whatever you want to say and so a lot of people make documentaries that way um but i think they have more people on staff to help find the right people when you're just a couple people it's much easier just to collect everything you can and then say all of this points here and uh, in Ladorvador, it points to justice and it points to charity. And it's a narrative that comes out of this old country idea where they're coming from a place where they need charity to survive. Uh, and then they come to America and they find these communities. And now because of generational wealth that in a lot of ways is unique to Tulsa because you have these people buying and selling pipe that leads to land, which leads to oil. And so then you end up with people um, like George Kaiser, who is trying to transform um, education and poverty and um, bring this North Tulsa area South and make and integrate them in a, fun educational way like things with things like the gathering place where every other thing is like well if we have a good school in south tulsa let's build a try to build a good school in north tulsa and that 
ends up with a more pleasant segregation, cultural segregation, even though there might not be any rules, you end up with, um, you know, you can build the North, the best school in North Tulsa, but, uh, you know, if it's, it's, if you don't try to bring those cultures together. And so, uh, it's a, it's a, that's a Takuna alum idea, which is a newer idea, but it still comes out of this charity and giving. If you read uh, George Kaiser's um, giving pledge that a lot of billionaires do, it, he doesn't say Takuna alum, he doesn't say Sadaka, but he says charity and justice, and this is the just thing I'm doing. And in the letter, it's coded Jewish language, which now is very easy for me to recognize because I, I talked to a lot of people that said it when you ask them why they would do charitable acts or why they would do stuff, mm. most of them don't say Sadaka um, or they say Sadaka is those little boxes. Like that's not what I'm doing. I'm doing it because it's the just thing to do. And so through that, you know, even though he is in his public life, he is um, he's not trying to be a Jewish billionaire. He's just is what he is he still grew up in that system. And so those morality ideas are, are encoded in his way of thinking. And you, and you see that in his giving pledge and you also see it in his, in the way that his uh, foundation uh, works with Tulsa. Beautiful. Elvis, before I turn things back to Rabbi Kamen, I want to remind you <clears throat> that we'd love to take your questions and comments in the chat box and Rabbi Kamen and I will try to put them together. We'll, Try to identify the clusters and um, and get Elvis to answer uh, to some of the questions that you might have, Rabbi. Yeah, Elvis. Before living in in Tulsa, I was in Los Angeles, and when I moved to Los Angeles, one of the things I learned was um, when in, at an average social gathering. I, I stopped asking people what they did because whatever they were doing, they were oftentimes you'd run into people who were on a path. They, they were wanting to be yeah. in filmmaking. They were wanting to be writing. They were wanting to be doing all sorts of other things. And, and whatever job they were doing was a, uh, was a, was a, was a step in that direction. And so anywhere mm -hmm. you turn in Los Angeles, you run into people who are filmmaking, writing, creating. Um, uh, and, and it might surprise people um, to know about the creative community in Oklahoma and filmmaking in Oklahoma. Um, can you tell me about your career as a filmmaker in Oklahoma, as opposed to working in, uh, a, a, in a place where my, people might think of Los Angeles as the place where movies are made or, um, or New York or, or any of these places or, or even Atlanta these days, um, as a place mm -hmm. of, of filmmaking. Well, uh, I don't, like this recently is a little different, but historically, like I haven't worked in Tulsa much. This is just where I live. Cause it's a nice place and my family's here and it's cheap, which is nice too. Cause like, then if you, if you're going to travel, um, which if I had done the same stuff, it's not like I'm going to LA to do everything. I'm mm -hmm. going to the desert in the middle of uh, like New Mexico or whatever. Cause it looks nice. And so that's the kind of, thing I was doing or um, or stuff in Oklahoma, just driving into the middle of nowhere to do it just because it happened. I it was like, oh, I know this place. It looks interesting. Um, and so I there are a lot of people that are Oklahoma filmmakers or Tulsa filmmakers, but I am not one. I just live here. And it's only recently that I've been able to do 
narrative, like film, traditional film kind of stuff in, um, in Tulsa. Um, because the industry didn't really exist here. I mean, there, there's, and no matter where you are, there's always people making films, but this is kind of new. The, the state rebate that, I don't know. I remember how old it is, but it's kind of like they didn't really fund it very much in the beginning. And uh, it was whatever. They weren't expecting anything too big. But having um, uh, Governor Stitt put a lot of money behind it because he could see it as a big business Mm -hmm. Um, and having Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a major uh, Scorsese project that Apple paid for. Um, he, like it's something that uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese wanted to do for a long time, but the it got to be more and more and more expensive. And then at some point Apple was like, here's a, you know, you can have as much money as you want. And so I don't know what the real budget is, but hundreds of millions of dollars and Apple doesn't care. They're like, yeah, here you go. And so that plus the pandemic pushing it out into the future it's always this thing that's like coming up there's a 200 million dollar movie being shot in oklahoma or there was 100 million and then it got twice as expensive at some point so it's always this big thing that's coming up plus governor stitt's funding of of uh the rebate a little bit more and then because of the pandemic pulling back the funding in some of the states um where oklahoma you know it's open for business so there's always uh, that was a thing where there started to be projects that would come here because the rebate's really good. And also there were no restrictions on filming. Um, I may, I shot a movie in April here and it was the kind of thing where a lot of uh, people I talked to were amazed that um, I could shoot it here at sort of at the beginning of the pandemic when everything was shutting down and and they they didn't understand that literally no one here cares even though there's a state thing where they're like shutting businesses down and i got to use um a few bars uh in tulsa because no one was going to them and they were they had to be shut down but if i wanted to go in and do literally anything i wanted there's no one like that's enforcing anything there's no masks there's no at that time there's no even it was hard to even get tested um and so that idea started to spread where you could come to oklahoma and do anything you want and so this just in the last year has grown up as a uh as a place where there are a lot of movies happening here a lot of like stuff in the um uh one to five million kind of features um and the, that just in Tulsa, but there's stuff all over the state. Um, but they're usually like they're coming here because they want to save money and it doesn't really matter. There's so many movies where it doesn't matter where it is. It's in a city, it's in a small town or it's out in the country. And so if you're in Eastern Oklahoma, you can be in the woods. If you're in Western Oklahoma, you can be literally any place that has plains. And there's even some places where you're like, oh yeah, that's New Mexico. Here's, there's a desert in Western Oklahoma. You're like, sure that we're in the Sahara. Um, As long as you don't look more than one direction, you could be in the Sahara desert. And so it's something that's growing up and it is a big business. And there are lots of projects 
uh, on the horizon, but uh, Oklahoma will probably become something like Georgia was, especially um, Savannah in the early days where it was like, whatever, like it's a, it's a movie and it takes place in a town. So we're going to shoot in Tulsa or Oklahoma city, Oklahoma city. Uh, I've, there's a lot of movies where it's just Dallas, like something happens in Dallas, but it's cheaper to shoot in Oklahoma city and it's fruit and it's, um, it's more hands-off here as this, as the whole state, you get a rebate. And also, um, the, if you don't travel much, you don't, you don't really know this, but, uh, the police almost everywhere will bust you for almost everything. But in Tulsa, if you have a white pickup truck, you can just stop right in the middle of the road and do anything you want. And nobody cares and park on the sidewalk. It's fine. Turn your hazards on. And you're like, well, why would they park there unless they were supposed to be there? And so there is this thing that uh, movie crews start to realize when they come here is that all of the restrictions they had in LA where they have to close down a street and they have to get permits for this. And you're like, well, I, you know, just, just have a, all you have to do is have a white pickup and you have, you can just do anything you want. Drive into the refinery. They're like, oh, hey, man, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's that joke of like, if you have a, a hard hat and a clipboard, you can go anywhere. Or like, if you want to sneak into the Super Bowl, just carry a ladder. And people are like, well, yeah, they're working on something. Tulsa as a, and Oklahoma as the whole state is like that. Um, so it's opened up quite a bit. I just wrapped on a movie um, on the third uh, and that shot for a few weeks and a shot during um, the height of the ice storm where it was negative 10 and um, the actors wardrobes were not, they didn't really plan out at being cold. The difference between 30 and negative 10 is quite a bit if you don't have all of your skin covered up. And so um, that was sort of the biggest hardship is like everybody's trying to move around in big coats. And while the actors also are wearing small coats <laughs> uh, for just kind of chilly stuff. Um, but yeah, that's just like a, it's like a, just a Christmas movie. Uh, no, there's no Jesus in it. Just, just only the good stuff of Chris, Christmas lights, trees, family. So it's good. Non, uh, non-specific <laughs> Christmas, um, through which through my interviews, I know that there are many people in the Jewish community that grew up having Christmas trees because it's, you know, if you're going to steal something from Christmas, steal the lights. Um, and so it, it's just. Yeah, it's just family and Christmas and snow and misunderstandings, and then they all fall in love in the end. Is this the film and that was shooting in North Maple Ridge during the? I think. So. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We blocked off a street with a lot of trucks and stuff for two or three days. Yeah, yeah. So at that house, there was a, a you know a date and a gingerbread uh, making thing, and so yeah, that's uh, some present wrapping. Yeah, and I was in the basement uh, figuring out stuff and then, then leaving and shooting stuff and coming back. Yeah, that was, oh, us. Listen, that was us. I didn't really put these things together before you said them, that our artistic maturity as a state is connected with disease and our unwillingness to enforce. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. So on these <laughs> sets, you because they have insurance and they have um, a lot of times there'll be a bond uh, company that insures for the producers that the movie company will actually finish the movie. All of those people are dictating COVID safety. So there are tests and mask mandates and 
um, usually two or three groups where you have a group that interacts with the actors, which is makeup, uh, wardrobe, those kinds of people. They get tested regularly. And then, then you have another group that gets tested like a couple times a week. And then you have another group that's like ancillary things. And they're like, well, don't ever come into contact with an actor. And then you can get tested once a week. Um, and so they're very safe, but they are able to do that here because states like California did such a, they did their best at trying to lock everything down. And so people had to leave to make movies they were already obligated to make in the safest way they could, but in a state where, where literally you could just do literally anything. And uh... Elvis, can we go back to that part about Christmas, but sort of a, yes. an, an, an allied issue. One of the most interesting things that you've talked about in the time that we've known you is your perspective on religious community. <laughs> And I'd mm -hmm. like us to go back to some of those conversations. Okay. And I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about what works for you, what doesn't work for you, what feels true and right and powerful, mm -hmm. okay. and what feels artificial, I guess all the opposites of the things that I just named. You, you asked us to think hard about what we wanted to accomplish over the high holidays. And we took you seriously. It was a very useful exercise. And you said some super smart things about the, the things, I guess, that, that pierced your heart and the mm. things that didn't. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, uh, over the last decade, um, well, especially five or six years ago, I was, I got on this string of Christian movies, which are the worst movies. And I would come in as a fixer to try to, um, help them re-edit them, reorganize them in a way to try to, uh, make them a little bit nicer. Um, and so I came, I would, uh, my whole history is a little bit that way where it's like um, you have this core of this idea where it's, let's just say Jesus or whatever in general. And then you have all of this modern evangelical stuff, which is like the paper thin kind of coating on it. And I remember being a kid and going to Sunday school and being like, we're just playing games and um, and we're not really doing anything. We're having snacks and playing games. I want to go to the real church and see the real stuff. And then I go to the real church and they sing some songs in a pretty bad way. And then they, some guy talks about his family and they ask for money. And then you sing some more songs and they're worse than the first ones. And then people are like, that was great. And then being a teenager and having people being like, oh, you should come to my church tip. It's cool. And seeing a different version of that where the songs are way better done, but they're still kind of lame. And then somebody talks about, oh, yeah, this thing happened. And that reminds me of whatever. Some guy. Here's someone to give me money. Here's a song. And so 
when I went to college, I took a lot of classes on religious history and even, and like uh, foundations of Christianity, because it's something that my whole life, well, not my whole life, two decades, at least from a little kid to being college age, I wasn't getting any substance of all at all. And then finally I'm getting like, oh, well in the first century, here's all of this stuff that happened. And then there's all this stuff that happened and the conflicts in the church, the, the way they addressed it, the, all of that kind of stuff, how that splintered into things. But then it's also um, the way that mythology influenced it, the way that um, Roman mythology influenced the Christian progression in a lot of ways where all early Christians are Jews. And then at some point it gets adopted by the Roman empire and then it's transformed into um, Roman symbolism, but then through the eyes of Christianity. And it was fascinating. I was like, Oh, this is really interesting. Why didn't, uh, why is, is everything else so shallow? I think is the, uh, maybe the good, good description for it. And so when we were talking about the, these holidays, these high holidays, it's like, what is, um, what is Yom Kippur? And the first answer I would get, sometimes the second or third answer also was, well, on this holiday, we do these things. And that's not what it is. That's what the rabbis before you did and the rabbis before you did, but why, like, what was the core of that? What does, um, I understand the traditions and the importance of the traditions, but having the traditions only be the thing without any connection to the core of the idea that's the difference. And that was um, the thing that I connected with or uh, pierced to my heart somehow was the, this idea of if you're a rabbi and you're going through this tradition and you need to translate this event to the congregation, what are you giving them? what is Yom Kippur? What is Rosh Hashanah? What is, what is all of this stuff? What does the Sabbath mean? Not that's the day that we go to synagogue. Like if you went on, like it, then it, it, you know, it's Saturday. Uh, it doesn't matter. Like if it's, if it's Tuesday, why is it Tuesday? Like, what is it? What does anything even mean? Like, why does it matter? Why does it matter that it's on this day? Why does it matter that it starts at sunset? Why does it, uh, why does it matter any, any of this stuff if you don't have the core of the idea? And that's something that I wanted to get across on those days. And I don't know that we did because we did have a lot of structure that was still similar, but it, 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 you know, it's uh, my my quest to revolutionize Judaism. Uh, it doesn't have to all happen at once. I can take <laughs> I can use a few high holidays to kind of get this idea across and make um, the deepest, most personal 
Rabbi Fitzerman delivery of what is Rosh Hashanah? What is Yom Kippur? What are all of these ideas? Where do they come from? And what do they mean to you now? Uh, you know, maybe it'll take two or three years. Thank you. Elvis. <laughs> I mean it. Elvis, the questions you. and your answers had a lot to do with what we thought during that period. That's good. And I hope that uh, I keep pushing so that I eventually get everything that I've ever wanted. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Amen is right. This brings us to the conclusion of this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Elvis Ripley. Our sincerest thanks and appreciation for his participation. Next week, we'll be joined by Reverend Chris Moore of Fellowship Congregational Church. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll look forward to being with you next time. Take care.